Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. And business owner, Keith Harden. It is axiomatic that the first role of government is to establish order so that people can feel safe and secure. It has become equally well understood by now what an unmitigated disaster this district attorney administration has been in all too many ways. When Todd Spitzer cannot keep his own house in order, when his own prosecutors are afraid to exercise their discretion, let alone report sexual when his own prosecutors are afraid to exercise their discretion, let alone report sexual harassment, how can the people feel safe? I want to congratulate Todd Spitzer on all those endorsements, but he forgot to mention that he lost the endorsements uh, of the top law enforcement officials of every major county in California after a number of racist remarks came to light. He forgot to mention that he advertised endorsements that he never got. How can you mention that, Todd? Yeah, yeah, that that person. But listen, you rightfully asked, what qualifies you, Keith? What qualifies you to run the largest law firm in Orange County? That's a great question. What qualifies me and what I hope earns your trust and support here tonight throughout this campaign is my leadership and legal experience. I learned a lot earning my commission as a Marine Corps officer and serving in that position for eight years. I learned a lot leading the prosecution office for the largest command in the Marine Corps. I learned a lot teaching Marines the rules of engagement and leading Marines at war in Afghanistan. And when I got back, I learned a lot leading trial teams of attorneys, law enforcement agents, and subject matter experts. Along the way, I've had the great honor of serving as a prosecutor at every level of our justice system. But make no mistake, I don't want to misrepresent myself. I don't claim to be the most experienced trial attorney. I know that I'm not. That's not what this job is about. Take a look at your ballot next week when you receive it in the mail. It'll say district attorney-public administrator. What I claim to be is a leader who will administer this office, this fundamental pillar of democracy in our community, the way that it ought to be, with integrity, transparency, and accountability. Because that's the leadership that we deserve in Orange County, not showmanship. I'm asking for your support. To help me work hand in hand with my colleagues at the district attorney's office, with all of you here in this room, so many of you know how to make our, our criminal justice system work better, and with leaders across Orange County, to make the district attorney's office a great place to work again, like it used to be. To make the, uh, our district attorney's office one of the premier prosecutorial agencies in the country. Together, working collaboratively, I know that we can accomplish that. Grateful to you for having me. Desiree Berg, and this week on the podcast, we are speaking to Pete Hardin, who is running for the Orange County District Attorney's Office against a embattled and not so liked current incumbent named Todd Spitzer. Welcome, Pete. Hey, good morning, Tina. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, you know, I wanted to start off the bat, right off the top, talking about a very serious question because I uh, was able to attend the debate uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I noted that you were the only candidate running for office that is actually opposed to the death penalty. Um, from my point of view, 
I don't even think the question has to sort of focus on whether it's moral just desserts, meaning a serial killer kills people deserves to die. I think the bigger question is whether or not the state can be entrusted with this power. We've seen time and time again where those that um, have been put on death row have ended, ended up not being guilty of the crimes they were accused of. So, you know, the question becomes like, how many people have we put to death that are actually innocent? Um, what are your thoughts on the death penalty and why are you opposed to it? Sure. Yeah. Great, great question. You know, I often say the same thing. Look, you know, we can have an academic discussion about uh, about the death penalty. But at the end of the day, uh, the truth is that uh, we are pursuing or this district attorney who's in place right now is pursuing uh, a sentence that is never going to be carried out. And that betrays taxpayers and uh, it betrays victims as well. Uh, you know, there's a moratorium on the death penalty here in California that is unlikely to ever be lifted. Public opinion across the country, uh, including significantly here in California, has shifted tremendously on this. So uh, when we seek the death penalty, sure, uh, you know, Todd Spitzer, my opponent, our current district attorney, gets to stand up there and sound really tough. But it's all empty at the end of the day uh, because it's never going to be carried out. And mm -hmm. we're putting victims and survivors through decades of appeals that re-traumatize them uh, at, at every step. And I've heard from so many of them about this. Uh, and then we're also betraying taxpayers. This is a system on which we have spent $5 billion, with a B, $5 billion since 1978 yeah. when, when it was reinstituted. Uh, you know, I, I, my mind goes right to thinking about all the things that we could do that we know prevents crime. You know, how many great public school education programs could we put in place, summer job placement programs, after school placement programs. Those types of things uh, are the things that are demonstrated to uh, lead to, to better public safety outcomes, whereas the death penalty uh, has never, ever been shown in any study to deter crime. Right. So, you know, that on top of what I said, you're correct, it's not a deterrent. Um, and, it, and it is uh, very traumatizing for somebody that's a victim to have to go through that process over and over again. And in fact, one of the things that Todd Spitzer said, if I um, recall correctly, was that, that, that it didn't matter to him how the victim perceived that process, that he was going to go full bore through it, regardless of what they thought. So if they said to Todd, I'm the victim in this crime and I don't particularly want to pursue the death penalty, he would ignore that, which I think is a little bit tone deaf on top of it. Well, that, uh, that describes Todd Spitzer very well. Tone deaf. <laughs> um, it, it, it really does. Look, I, I don't uh, claim to speak for survivors uh, who, have, who have lost people in, in horrible um, in horrible crimes. I don't claim to speak for them, but I do claim to have listened to them. You know, one of the most powerful meetings that I've had throughout the last, what, 15 months of campaigning is with a group called Parents of Murdered Children. This is a, a national organization. I would encourage your, your listeners and viewers to, to go online and check it out. It's a national organization uh, dedicated to uh, supporting families whose loved ones have been have been killed uh, through violence. And yeah. I sat down with the Orange chapter, uh, um, uh, the Orange County chapter, that is, of, of Parents of Murdered Children. And it, it was just so powerful to hear their stories and to just listen and to, to share that space and to, and to share that grief with them. And what I, what I hear so often is that they just want to be heard. Yeah. And uh, that seems to be too much to ask from our current district attorney. Indeed. Um Let's talk about Spitzer for a second in regards to what I consider to be a highly racist commentary that's occurred on more than one occasion. We're not just talking about a single example of this. 
the one that made uh, headlines a couple of weeks ago was in regards to a double homicide in which he basically claimed the the culprit was dating a white woman to get out of bad circumstances was one of the things he said. And when he was called on it and confronted by that, what he, he tried to clarify his point. And as far as I'm concerned, it didn't get any better. It wasn't improved. He basically said, I met black men improved their statue in the community by dating white women. This is as racist as the initial comments. I mean, come on now. Uh, then he went on to uh, go speak at some conference somewhere. The video surfaced and you see him using the N-word multiple times. He also says camel jockey um, in, in regards to referencing crime reports, understood that these are crime reports and they weren't his initial words. But the slide even said N-word and he chose to use the full word as, as opposed to saying N-word while he censored himself for using the F-word. So where I'm coming from on that is that if it trips off your tongue that easily, is probably something you've said multiple times in the past in private. Um, and given his first example with the double homicide, I think that's probably true. Do you think um, this is going to weigh heavily in the race? I think the people of Orange County are probably a little bit fed up with uh, with these kinds of things, because at the end of the day, people want criminal justice to be about that. They don't want it to be, you know, unfair and uneven in how it's applied. Absolutely, Tina. Yeah, listen, Todd Spitzer ran on a platform of cleaning up the office. And, uh, you know, it's ironic that in his three or four years in office, he has brought more scandals and lawsuits yeah. and problems to the office of this county than his predecessor, Tony Rodakis, <laughs> did in 20 years. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, Todd Spitzer's racism is absolutely playing a part in this race. Uh, I hear from communities in places like Santa Ana and Anaheim and Buena Park and Communities that I think have never uh, known that they can and should have a voice in our criminal justice and law enforcement systems. And those types of comments have awoken communities mm -hmm. uh, to the problems in, in the criminal justice system uh, or put them over the top. I think they, they've known about the problems for a long yeah. time. They've, they've, they've felt them. Uh, but I think uh, hopefully they, they see that they have a champion in me now who will uh, make sure that they have that voice and uh, listen to them. Uh, co-govern with them, in fact. And, uh, you know, yeah, the, the, the comments were awful. I, in particular, tried to explain a racist comment uh, by making a more racist comment. It, it, exactly. it was really, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, if, if it it's wasn't shocking. so awful, then yeah. It's if it wasn't shocking so really awful, because he doesn't hear himself. The fact that he, he tried to clarify that by saying something that was more racist was pretty shocking in the sense that he didn't think it was racist, right? So when it came out of his mouth, he thought this was perfectly acceptable rhetoric when it's clearly not. Exactly, yeah. Um, so also, I wanted to bring up a particular case that is going through the justice system now that I understand is very controversial for many reasons. Um, Tatiana Turner, who is a BLM activist, has been charged with attempted murder for her actions at a protest. Um, I want to talk about this for a second because I think it's an example of where his racism might come into play and where excessive and aggressive prosecution may come into play. The question is, is, is she guilty of attempted murder? So that particular protest for folks that aren't clear was at Yorba Linda. Well, we were there present filming. I can tell you that it was unbelievable. Um, really racist comments flying back and flying back from the Trump people, uh, threats, you know, one of them was going on about how this was a civil war. And if, if the left didn't already know it was a civil war, they needed to wake up. 
video of one guy who admitted that he had a gun on him. I'm, I'm just trying to paint a picture of how this was. So this was not a situation in which you had one side being violent and the other just being peachy keen. That's just absolutely not the case. Um, as things escalated, the sheriff's department walked away, the Trump uh, supporters who, and, and there was some really extreme right wing extremists in there, including capital insurrectionists. They came across the street because the police had left and they'd gone upstairs to this like second story part of the, the mall. And things just escalated from there. Um, she ended up trying to drive out of the parking lot and she hit a couple of people on the way out. So I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be any anything attached to that action. But my question is, is it really attempted murder? Well, Tina, I've got to be careful here. I, I can't comment on an active case. Fair, um, that's fair. Per, per, particularly one in which I will, uh, you know, be handling if if I'm fortunate enough to earn the trust also of, fair. Uh, <laughs> of, of voters here um, and and be elected. But I, you know, I can speak generally, and yeah. I, I share a lot of your concerns. Um, I, I actually haven't seen the video in this case. I've okay. I've heard about it. Uh, I certainly know about Ms. Turner's um, case by broad strokes and. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's very problematic that, uh, you know, you, you have a, a lone black woman in a sea of angry uh, racist. I, I, I think it's fair to say outwardly racist uh, yeah. white folks uh, who gets into her car. People are banging on her car, yeah, kicking uh, banging it. on the windows mm -hmm. and she's trying to escape. Um, you know, I, I have concerns about that and uh, okay. look forward to looking closer at it. Yeah, obviously you can't comment on something specifically like this, but I was just really surprised that Spitzer decided to go that route. He he had his initial bail, in fact, was $1 million, which is usually a, a bail amount that you would see attached to, you know, very serious murder offenses. Um, anyway, can I comment so, on that? Yes, you can. Absolutely. Please do. Yeah, I mean, that goes right to, to the problem with our, with our cash bail system. You know, mm -hmm. the California Supreme Court and the Humphrey decision made very clear that uh, pretrial detention it should be the carefully limited exception. 
uh, and that and that freedom is the norm, and that freedom should never depend on how much money is in one's wallet. So, uh, you know, cl- clearly, Ms. Turner does not have a, a criminal record to suggest right. that she would be an imminent danger to society if 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 she were to be let out. So, you know, to me, that is in direct uh, contradiction to California Supreme Court law. Oh, indeed. You know, and in fact, I was going to ask you about cash bail because I think this is the case. It seems to me that we have folks sit, that sit in jail because they can't afford to post bail. They have not been convicted of anything. They simply can't afford to post bail. And that sounds like a way to criminalize poverty at base. Sure. Yeah. Listen, this has become such a lightning rod issue, but it shouldn't be. Uh, it, yeah. it just shouldn't be that the, I was a federal prosecutor for several years. The federal system doesn't have cash bail right? Uh, and, and their system works just fine. Uh, there are problems with it, to be sure, uh, that we need to work on. But, um, you know, moving away from cash bail is not some revolutionary idea. Federal right. courts do it every single day right. of every year. And, um, you know, cash bail, what people need to realize is that it's never been about public safety. How can it be about public safety when a wealthy, dangerous person can buy his way out of pretrial detention, right? Uh, whereas a less affluent person languishes behind bars. Right. And uh, we pay a public safety price for that, too. As the California Supreme Court uh, mentioned in its Humphrey decision, they, they cited to studies demonstrating that uh, being locked up pretrial uh, for less affluent people can lead to greater unemployment, lack of housing, and losing custody of children. Right. And uh, those are all things, particularly lack of employment and, and losing one's housing. Right. Those are closely correlated with increasing crime rates. So oh. we've got to take a smarter look at uh, public safety here and, and move to a system that says, hey, if, if you're dangerous, it doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor. You, right. you remain behind bars. And if you're not, then go about your life. Uh, indeed, I agree with you on that. Um, it's something that should be addressed. The feds don't use it, which is it's strange to me that, in fact, that the state does, given those circumstances. Uh, it, it, you know, the other side of that argument is I've heard folks say they're more concerned about allowing a judge to have that kind of leeway or power. I'm not sure that that's more detrimental, though, um, given the way the federal system is set up. We see these examples versus, uh, again, criminalizing poverty in a way that that you have folks that simply can't afford to post bail. Some of them are innocent. Indeed, they are definitely innocent. We've had uh, people just languishing in there that end up getting harmed, getting in prison fights. You know, all kinds of things can happen in, the, in those circumstances that are just not deserved. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Tina. It, it's an incredibly uh, difficult topic to, to, to delve into. It's, 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 it's thorny. Um, and it would take <laughs> yeah. it would take it would take a whole separate podcast. I'd love to come back sometime and, and convene with some experts because that would be frank, frankly, I'm trying to learn more about it. But I can tell you this: um, suffice it to say for now that the key thing is to get the cash bail industry out of the conversation. Uh, right. I think we miss we missed the boat on that. Um, uh, I, I understand that any sort of um, algorithm based system is going to have its problems. Right. Yes, there's going to be some institutional racism baked in there. But it's a starting point. And, uh, I, you know, to my mind, that is a good starting point. Yeah. Um, and in I, fact, I would argue that institutional racism is already baked into the cash bail system. So absolutely. six of one half dozen of the other, we can deal with that. But I do think we need to get rid of the cash bail system. I wanted to ask you about your previous experience as a judge advocate uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps. How does this bring relevance to the job of district attorney experience wise? 
In so many ways. First, uh, in terms of legal experience, I served as a prosecutor. You know, that's one step of several. I've served as a prosecutor at every level of our justice system. I've seen what works. I've seen what doesn't. Uh, and I look forward to bringing that to play. I think more importantly, though, uh, the leadership lessons I learned in earning my commission as a Marine Corps officer, serving in that role for eight years, training hundreds of Marines on the on the rules of engagement, leading Marines at war, uh, leading the prosecution office for the largest command in the Marine Corps. You know, th those are invaluable uh, leadership lessons that I, I never could have gotten anywhere else. And uh, that's uh, what drives this campaign. And that will drive the kind of leadership I bring to the position. Fantastic. Uh, you know, qualified immunity is another criminal justice hot button issue at this point uh, for good reasons. Qualified immunity for folks that are listening that don't know what that is. Uh, I want to talk about this. It allows police officers to do what they do and, and not seek any um, any accountability for their actions, uh, per se. Uh, you had mentioned during the debate, and I thought this was an interesting uh, concept of attaching some sort of liability to a police officer's actions where they carry their own liability insurance, perhaps, or something of this nature. But you know, if you look at the amount of lawsuits that are paid out uh, by cities every year for the actions of some rogue officers doing things that are um, completely inappropriate, it's, it's a lot of money. It's millions of dollars. Um, and I think that they're not concerned about that because they're not the ultimate payer of, of the price. Um, and let me give you a personal example. When I was covering one of the initial uh, George Floyd protests, I more or less had an, an LAPD officer intentionally shoot my window with a rubber bullet. Uh, and, and the wild thing is the camera was on when he did it. So we have it on video, we know who it was. And when I asked him, I was angry. I was like, what are you doing? He actually said to me really flippantly, call the city. So I was like, wow, call the city. You want the taxpayers to pay for this. That's crazy. And in that moment, I realized these guys really don't feel like they have to be accountable for what they do. Now, I'm not saying that all L um, LAPD officers are like this, but certainly some of them are. Um, and we're all ultimately paying the price for that. And part of the problem, I think, is the qualified immunity. Um, what is your stance on that? And, and, and more, in a more broader way, how do we attach liability to these individuals' actions? Sure. Well, look, first of all, we, we certainly need to recognize that police officers have an incredibly difficult job. Um, you know, I, I got a sense of this as a Marine Corps yeah. officer in Afghanistan, where uh, at, at one minute we're getting shot at, yeah. uh, you know, 10 minutes later, we are, uh, you know, helping uh, women receive health care, basic health care right. needs or uh, meeting with people to discuss uh, crops that they can plant other than poppy plants, which which funds right. uh, the Taliban. So, you know, that constantly moving, uh, shifting mindset is is incredibly difficult. And, and I've been there. So I want to acknowledge that for first uh, and foremost. No, but, indeed, I, I don't disagree with that at all. But 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 second, you know, I'm glad we're taking a close look at qualified immunity. It, it is uh, a, a totally unique thing in yeah. in, in, in our government. Um, I do think we need to move away from qualified immunity and to a private insurance-based system. Um, let me analogize it to, to being uh, an attorney, obviously very, very different, but attorneys, uh, being included, have to have malpractice insurance. You're, you are required to carry it. The California State Bar requires us right. to carry malpractice insurance. So right. uh, if I do something wrong by a client and I get sued, then insurance, uh, and I lose, then insurance will will pay it out. And that's, I, I pay the, the premium and the insurance company then pays it out. Um, I think we should have that same model for police officers. Um, the, the premiums would go up 
for officers who are accused of misconduct uh, on uh, multiple times. And the, the cities or the departments would be forced to carry those increased premiums. Uh, but the payouts would not come from the general public fund. And, and this is something you, you sort of touched on this, but something really important for your viewers and, and listeners to understand. When you hear about these huge payouts uh, for police officers who committed misconduct, it doesn't come directly from the law enforcement agency's budget. It comes from a general fund. That's where all of our taxpayers go into. So the police department itself doesn't necessarily feel the sting. Um, well, they, they would if policies went up more, the prices for policies went up for, more for particular officers, and it would incentivize them to put uh, better training into place and yeah. to, frankly, get rid of the very few officers. I mean, you know, the, the, the very few officers, I really do believe that most officers, vast majority, join for the right reasons, are, 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 are doing it for the right reasons and performing their job well. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, the very small percentage get all the attention. You never hear about, right. you know, the, the great, the great things that good cops do all day, every day. Uh, the bad ones get the attention. Um, and I think, you know, we need to change the, the levers so that uh, local police departments are more on the hook. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. Um, in, in my, in my investigations that I have looked into certain officers, uh, you're right. It's if, if I pull up an officer that I know has done something that was a little bit sketchy, I soon find out from doing a CPRA request that he's been involved in multiple use of force problems. So it is definitely the same repeat folks doing the same thing. And they're just not, they're not receiving any uh, punishment or corrective measures for that, which I think is a problem. Also, I think something that we need to examine is, is I believe, and this speaks to your experience in Afghanistan, I believe a lot of times these officers are tasked, are tasked with things that they're not equipped to handle. Uh, their, their law enforcement isn't supposed to be doing, you know, healthcare. They're not supposed to be doing aid to homeless folks. Like there's so many things that, that the city has put into the LAPD budget and same with Orange County, right? Where the money might be better spent with hiring folks that actually are trained to deal with those situations. Um, so another thing we should maybe look at, I don't know what your stance is on that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Chance. And your, your comment brings up a conversation I had with a police officer friend the other day. I was talking about this yeah. very issues and he, 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 he and I were, were both former Marines and we had both spent time in Afghanistan and, he, and we were talking about the concept of jumping from one mindset to another, which is so difficult. And he said, you know, Pete, just last week, I was called out uh, from, they were, they were, they were chasing somebody who just committed a, an armed robbery and he got pulled off of that to uh, deal with a homeless person who was in the road and took care of that. And then he got called to someone's house. An, an old lady had a had a bird in her house, and you know who do you call, right? So she called. You know, you? She called There's nobody she, else to call. That's the problem. <laughs> she called the police by default, and yeah. they sent yeah. an officer out to sort of do a welfare check on her since she was an right. elderly lady. And they, you know, my friend sort of you know politely shooed the, the the bird out the door. But think about the mindset you have to have and the adrenaline that's coursing through your veins after chasing an armed robber and then yeah. after, you know, dealing with the traffic flying by you trying to save, uh, you, you know, a homeless, uh, mentally disturbed homeless person's life. Well, that's it. They, and, they're not trained to deal with mentally ill individuals. And this is oftentimes when you see bad shootings, it's stemming from this. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, you may have heard me talk at that, at that debate about mm -hmm. my belief in crisis response teams. Um, right. You know, jurisdictions across the country are adopting this and there's no reason that we shouldn't here in Orange County 
Um, you, you know, we've got to have teams of specially trained individuals who uh, go out to respond to that, uh, that person experiencing a mental health crisis or an addiction crisis, um, who don't carry guns and badges, but right. who can call those people out if a, if if a situation escalates. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. frees up our gun and badge carrying officers to do what they do best, which is, right. you know, chasing, chasing bad guys, keeping us safe from violent crime, which is through the roof here in Orange County over the last few years. Homicides are at a 22-year high. Violent crime is up over 50% here. We need our officers keeping us safe, and we should make that job easier uh, on them, not more difficult by bringing crisis response teams. That's not defunding police. That's reallocating funding within police. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing. I don't think a lot of people understand when activists say defund the LAPD. I don't think people really understand what that means. What they're talking about, and and this is, you know, a technical issue that has to do with the municipal budget. They're talking about the fact that the budget for dealing with homeless folks has been put into the LAPD budget. They're talking about, you know, all of these things that have really nothing to do with law enforcement or solving crime have been put into that basket. And it doesn't make any sense. So reallocating that funds to things that that do make sense, mental, you know, things you're talking about, mental health crisis teams, um, somebody that deals with homeless folks. I mean, the increase in homelessness is is a big driver of this. And I also think something that's not getting addressed, and this is entirely a political conversation, is is the income inequality of the state. You cannot pay rent off $15 an hour. It's crazy. It's a crazy thing. This is where we're at, though. And, you know, I was um, after after Echo Park, where they tried to clear that out, the LAPD came in there, brutally cleared it out. This was the wrong response uh, to this, in my opinion. But that's what they were tasked with. Um, You know, there were a couple of girls I spoke to that were UCLA students. They were sleeping in a tent there because they couldn't afford rent after paying tuition. And even to, to get the tuition, they had to get a student loan. Um, I spoke with another gal that had a nighttime shift job that paid her minimum wage. She wasn't part, she particularly told me she couldn't uh, participate in a room key, the room key program because they lock you in at seven o'clock at night and she wouldn't be able to go to work. There's just all of these crazy stories that you hear that are just not being addressed in any adequate way. And I think it's contributing uh, contributing to the crime rates that we're seeing right now. So, so there are ways to handle things in which we don't criminalize poverty or criminalize everything that that just isn't um, pleasing to the wealthier folks in our state. To put it yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, <laughs> Tina. It's it's uh, I I couldn't agree more, and I think it's something we need to talk more about the mm-hmm. income inequality leading to uh, increased crime rates. Um, thankfully, this is starting to be studied a little bit more, but we need leaders who will speak up about this uh, yeah. instead of just uh, you know denigrating. Uh, those among us who are struggling to keep up Um, and those students, man, I mean, that, that story you just told me is, I know it's crazy, right? I couldn't believe it. It's it's, it's heartbreaking. Instead of just denigrating those people, we need district attorneys. Uh, These, these, these men and women in our state and across our country wield a tremendous amount of power and they have huge megaphones to draw attention to these issues. Uh, We need district attorneys who will highlight uh, income inequality as a driver of, of these issues that we're dealing with. Um, yeah. And work with the legislature and boards of supervisor uh, across uh, across the state and the country to ameliorate those issues. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you have an interesting uh, page on your website where you talk about ending the practice of prosecuting children as adults. Um, I actually tend to agree with this, and I think it's something that doesn't get discussed very much. We went through this period of time, I want to say late 90s, mid 90s, late 90s 
where the rhetoric for everything was tough on crime, right? The, the way to handle and deal with uh, any sort of violence or to prevent violence from happening is just to be tough on every single thing, right? And part of that wave had to do with trying children as adults. And I think we've now seen, you know, all these decades on that that hasn't served the community well. So what are your plans in this area? Sure. So th- look, those of us who are, are parents know what uh, what the science is telling us, that kids' brains don't stop developing cognitively until uh, age 25. Wow. So yeah. kids are prone to make some uh, sometimes spectacularly bad and <laughs> scary decisions. Yeah. Um, we uh, need to recognize that science. Uh, we also need to recognize the price we paid for uh, charging so many kids as, as adults. Um, when kids are locked up with older, more hardened offenders, unsurprisingly, based on what we know about our jails and prisons, they're abused and they, yeah. and they learn from them. And when they get out, they lash out. All these kids are getting out. And when they get out, their recidivism rates is significantly higher than it is for their peers who go through the juvenile justice system. That makes we sense. need to take these things into account, work with the science, work with the modern data, not against it, and uh, do everything that we can to charge children as children instead of adults. Now, I recognize there are going to be exceptions. Uh, right. You know, There are going to be times when, uh, for whatever reason, we, we take all factors into consideration. And uh, I, I shouldn't say we, I should say I. Uh, that's a decision, if I'm elected, that will rest with me alone. Uh, I will look at all the factors, and there may be cases in which I decide to charge someone who is under the age of 18 as an adult, but that will be the carefully limited exception to right. my general rule. Right. Um, I agree with you there. I think you know maybe the exception would be like the Charlie Manson kind of a criminal, but those are so rare. They're so rare. Like for the For the most part, we're seeing these kids that you know, made some stupid mistakes, um, as you're right, they do. And they, if they didn't go in being a hardened criminal, they're certainly going to come out from that experience being one. So it makes sense that the recidivism rates are what they are. Um, I want to talk about gun violence for a moment. Um, we're seeing an increase in that as well. And in fact, gun violence has become so common that it, it just doesn't even like people don't flinch an eyelid when they see a shooting at this point. Obviously we had a, a, a hate-driven one that just happened in Orange County on that very same day in Orange County when uh, the gentleman came in and shot up the the Taiwanese church. I actually witnessed uh, a shooting myself. Can you hold his arm down so he can stab him? You got to put pressure on him. Dude, this guy just got shot. He's going to be so Where's the suspect? I don't know. He ran off. Which direction? Any description? No, I didn't see him. Oh my God. I think right here is Right here. Right here. Right here. Yeah. Where's the shooter? He ran down that way. Los Angeles at Grand Central Station, a guy came in and and he shot somebody seven or eight times um, in a restaurant that was crowded and there were kids in there. It was really disturbing. I would say this, having gone through that experience, and this is this is the first time I've ever witnessed anything like this. I don't think having more police officers on parole and that would have prevented this. I think I think there's so many guns out there on the street that 
I don't know what you do about it. I don't know how you roll that carpet back. Um, I honestly don't have a solution or even a thought of how to answer how we fix the shooting problem that we're experiencing in the country. But it's, you know, it has to be addressed in some way. Thoughts and prayers aren't going to do it. So in your view, what are what are some things that we can do to, to try to correct the situation? A few things, Tina. It, it is uh, a difficult and intractable problem, but we can't just throw our hands up. Um, yeah. First of all, we've got to keep pushing for smart uh, gun control laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, studies tell us or polling tells us that the vast majority of America's, Americans believe in common sense gun control laws. Yeah. And in, it's interesting to look at states that are insulated by other states who have common sense gun laws uh, are safer than, than those that aren't. So here in California, wow. for example, yeah. we're buffered by Arizona, which has very lax laws, um, uh, whereas yeah. in a number of states uh, in the Northeast, uh, they are buffered by other states with, with, um, with, with strong gun control laws in place. That can really make a difference. So I think we need to keep pushing against the partisan gridlock here uh, and and raise these issues. And another thing I wanna talk about is violence interruption programs. These are, uh, can be incredibly powerful. There's one called Advanced Peace. Um, This is a powerful tool to prevent violence. Uh, The Brookings Institution actually found that Advanced Peace contributed to a 20% drop in gun homicides in Stockton, California. Mm. Uh, and a 22% drop in Sacramento over just a two-year implementation period. So that shows you the remarkable strength of that. Um, And then finally, uh, I will talk about uh, ghost guns. Uh, You know, these uh, guns that uh, people can put together from kits. You order various parts from from different places online. Uh, There there are companies that are putting this out, and uh, it's, you know, my... My young son and I put together car kits and every time we do it, I, I think, you know, this is really not any more difficult than yeah. putting together uh, a ghost guns. Um, so, uh, you know, cracking down on those companies uh, who know exactly what they're doing, uh, passing laws to crack down on those companies uh, is, is exactly what we need. I know that Attorney General Bonta is taking action against ghost guns. I applaud him for that. We've got to prevent manufacturers from, from selling them. And then uh, another thing we can do, um, I, I, know I, I know I said finally to the point before, but this, yeah. this will be my, my final one because it, it is such a, a difficult issue. There's so many different angles that we have to yeah. come at it from, but proactive prosecution, you know, data and intelligence driven prosecution, um, you know, about 5% of offenders commit up to 50% of crime in our communities. So uh, we right. can and should use the intelligence uh, gathering and uh, analysis tools at our disposal to uh, crack down on those individuals. And I think that by narrowing those down, um, focusing in on those who are committing uh, uh, gun violence, we can make a real, a real big difference in our communities. Yeah. I mean, especially if we know who is buying the guns, uh, you know, for example, I was looking at, you know, some of the shooters uh, history in Orange County and his roommate is actually a a guy that's associated with the White Lives Matter movement. Um, So he's been hanging out with neo-Nazis. Obviously, this is far right extremist violence. Uh, But that doesn't seem to get very much attention. I think it's getting more attention in the wake of January 6th uh, at the Capitol 
But I still think, you know, in fact, I was speaking with an ex-FBI agent on this and his biggest beef with, with law enforcement is that they don't look at right-wing extremists, they ignore them, or they have active ties to law enforcement. And, and I think that they're, you know, again, we're not talking about everybody, but there, there's an element of that there. And I'm not sure how, how we correct that, but it's something that we should definitely keep paying attention to because it seems most of these shootings, most of this violence is stemming from a very radicalized group of individuals um, that have bought into, you know, either QAnon theories or, you know, just neo-Nazi-ish type theories or fascist type theories. Like this, this is definitely something that's increased over the last 10 years, which is wild to think about, but it's, it's uh, right in front of our faces. So something to pay attention to. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you about obviously Roe v. Wade. I know that this is probably a bigger story picture than uh, what you would ever deal with as a district attorney, but I don't think anybody saw this day coming ever where our, our Supreme Court would decide that overturning decades of precedence wasn't radical and that this is what they're going to do. My concern going forward, um, and this is what I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this as a legal expert. It, it seems to me that Alito's roadmap could be used to go after other uh, rights that have been ensconced into, um, into our law, right? So not just Roe v. Wade, maybe civil rights or some other things. Gay marriage is an obvious one. Uh, do you have any concern about that? And what are your thoughts about you know, California handling if that does happen, right? So SCOTUS overturns Roe v. Wade. How does California move forward handling that? Sure. Well, let me let me start this with a disclaimer that I am far from a constitutional law expert or, a, okay. or an expert on, on Supreme Court law. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm an informed citizen like the rest of us um, who, who read the, uh, the the leaked draft. And, and I share your concern. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, okay. that there is a uh, that there is a roadmap to, to rolling back other rights that we now considered settled um, in there. And I think that attorneys general and district attorneys have a big part to play here uh, in ensuring that uh, local rights um, are are upheld. And yeah. um, you know, I'm I'm very proud to be endorsed by by Planned Parenthood here. You know, as you know, I think Todd Spitzer's 30 year <laughs> career in politics, he has fiercely opposed women's right to choose uh, and marriage equality at every turn. As a yeah. as a legislator, he voted against upholding Roe v. Wade against sex education uh, in favor of bills that uh, would create legal hurdles for, for abortions. He earned a, a, a top uh, ringing score of 0% from Planned Parenthood. And a 90% score from Life Priority Network, which is exactly what it sounds, an anti-choice organization. Um, yeah. He also, you know, talking about rolling back other rights, he also voted against legalizing same-sex marriage and mm -hmm. received a 0% rating from Equality California, um, mm -hmm. which, as I'm sure you know, and for your listeners, is an LGBTQ plus civil rights right. advocacy organization. Um, look, I, I'm, I'm proud to be endorsed by Planned Parenthood. Going back to our last question about, about uh, you know, figuring out uh, our way forward on gun violence. I'm very proud to be endorsed by Moms Demand Action. Oh, okay. Um, I'm proud to be endorsed by several LGBTQ plus organizations. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely committed to these rights. And I think that, you know, I want to make sure that Orange County is a place where women around California and from outside of California 
feel safe uh, coming to get the healthcare that they need and deserve as a, right. as a right, as a fundamental right. Yeah. It seems that way to me. I understand, you know, listen, I understand if some women or even men are, are against abortion that they can have and hold that opinion. What I, what I don't understand is why they feel the need to, to legislate that or to remove that rights from other individuals. To me, it's like, if you don't want to have an abortion, then don't have one. No one's forcing you to do this, but it seems that that's sort of the direction that we're, um, that we're headed in. And it sort of flies in the space of idea of religious tolerance, right? The, the country being founded on religious tolerance. We've now shifted that, that division, right? You can't have tolerance if you are picking and choosing which, uh, which religious beliefs we should ingrain into our legal system. So um, I think we're in a very precarious position with that. Um, I think we'll be safe here in California, but I worry, you know, I worry about other things. And Taz Pisser has had very extreme views on this. Um, you're correct on that. I wanted to ask you because of that extreme views, I think we've seen a shift in um, district attorney's offices across the country, not just here in California. Um, and with that shift has, has come some blowback, right? So you know, Gascon was elected um, as a progressive prosecutor, so to speak. That's sort of what they're calling these individuals. Um, we have the DA in Pennsylvania. We have Chase Boudin. We have so um, the American public elected these individuals because they saw they took a hard look at our criminal justice system and realized that laws were not being applied fairly and evenly across the board. That certain groups were being prosecuted harder and more aggressively than others. Others weren't being prosecuted at all. And, you know, this, that sort of thing, when that carries on, uh, it provides an erosion of public trust in the system, which is really dangerous, I think. So, but now you're seeing a backlash to this, right? So all of the, um, all of the sort of Trump loving extremists that were really behind these guys have launched recall campaigns, right? That's, you're seeing these across the board. Some of the rhetoric we see attached to that has uh, very anti-Semitic underpinnings. They love to say that uh, George Soros is funding these guys and that uh, he's funding Antifa and Antifa is supporting them because they're pro-criminal, like just wild stuff I see. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you've seen some of this too. How did we get to this place where you have such extreme viewpoints? I think, I think we've made such great progress in, in how, we, how we deal with justice in this country. The fact that anybody would want to see somebody languish in prison that wasn't guilty of a crime just blows my mind, but that was actually happening before. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's partly just a matter of our polarized politics right now, Tina, as, yeah, as we okay. see everywhere. But I think an interesting uh, aspect of this is around blanket policies, you know, in, in the 1990s, as a, a result yeah. of tra tragic and horrifying cases like poly class, uh, we saw the, the pendulum swing way to the right and we created blanket policies uh, based on the extreme and that leads to bad policy. And it led us to where we are today, uh, which is unquestionably facing gross uh, over-incarceration um, and, and inequities in our criminal justice system. On the other hand, though, it's important to recognize that when we create policy that only addresses the norm, it's based on the norm and only addresses the norm and fails to take into account the extremes that, of course, are going to arise in this all-too-human criminal justice system, uh, then what happens is the policy becomes defined by the extremes. And I think that's what we're seeing right now with the backlash. And uh, this moment in time, I think, calls yeah. for leaders who are going to go beyond, you know, labels, tough on crime or, or progressive. <laughs> uh, we've got we've got, we've got to go beyond this. And, I agree with you. Justice should be justice. It should be just that. You know what I mean? What is just right, and, and strike the middle ground. 
yeah. uh, to uh, hire prosecutors based on their on their good judgment and their discretion, train them adequately uh, in, in the data and the social science, and uh, put policies into place that that uh, take what's happening into account, and then let them do their job. Uh, finding that middle ground is the key, and I, I you know that's exactly why I'm running to to do just that. So are there any parts of your platform that we haven't touched on that you think are highly important that we should discuss? Yeah, I think, you know, revitalizing our our victims and survivors services Mm, uh, platform. Again, going back to that conversation I had with parents of murdered children, uh, changing the the way that we treat victims and survivors has always been important to me, but never more so than after that conversation. Right now, our system demands uh, that people navigate a, a Byzantine uh, maze of, of services at the most difficult and um, and and tragic time in their lives um, at their most vulnerable and we, we shouldn't expect people to do that so I'm going to make some fundamental changes to ensure that uh, victims and survivors are contacted uh, by victims witness uh, liaison folks within 24 hours of the office receiving notification that they are assigned a dedicated person, to stay with them from start to finish, uh, whether or not that victim decides to uh, go forward with a prosecution or to testify at trial, they still deserve our community's full support. Yeah. And then I want to institute a, an innovative family services center to house under one roof all the services that uh, survivors need that a lot of us don't ever think about. Childcare, for example. You know, what, 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 is, what is someone a victim with a young child do when she's got to go sit with an investigator for three hours or go testify in court for three hours. Uh, That's tough. Um, Reimbursement services. You know, what happens when, uh, you know, someone is working an hourly job, comes home uh, and gets beat up by their partner. Uh, The partner gets removed from the home, but they need a security system or a surveillance system. Well, that costs, you know, easily $500. Yeah. A lot. Um, you know, reimbursement services to ensure that uh, that that people are 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 able to afford those things. Um, the, the California state already has a program for that, but it can take months and months for mm-hmm. survivors or, or victims to receive compensation. So we can create a a county fund to pay those out immediately, and then seek reimbursement uh, from that the state. That would be great. That seems so, like a great plan. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. These, it's not just the right thing to do, though. This is what this is what I want people to understand. So it's not just the right thing to do. It's a safety imperative because mm-hmm. it is all too true that hurt people hurt people, uh, unfortunately. People who are recently victimized often go victimize other people. Yeah. Uh, we need to uh, support our community, again, not just because it's the right thing to do morally, but because it, it's going to make all of us safer. Well, that's just it, right? We need to look at more crime prevention things versus retroactively doing something about the crime once it's happened. I think we could be doing a lot more in that area. Let me ask you this just because it's bringing a thought to my head. Um, Juries. It's really difficult to get juries out there because a lot of companies don't reimburse their paychecks for the day, right? If they sit on a jury, you don't get paid. And the amount the state gives you is so little, you can't do anything with it. Is there a way to sort of manage that system better in your opinion? Well, I'm not an expert on this team. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I would have to go, lo- I would have to go look at the, the I don't want to speak out of turn, but okay. um, we, we certainly should have, and I think we do have laws in place that uh, make sure that, um, you know, companies can't fire people for 
for uh, you know engaging. No, they can't in- fire them, but they don't necessarily have to pay them either. Um, right. And then you have gig workers, like maybe you, your job is to drive for Uber. What happens to that guy if he gets on you know a really serious crime case that's in trial for two or three weeks? Right. That, right. He won't be able to pay rent. Like I just think it's really strange that we put so much um, credence into this idea of, tr- of tr- you know a trial by your peers, which I think is important and uh, the way it should be. Yet at the same time, we're making it difficult for that to happen. Um, was not on my list of questions, but when you were talking about this uh, compensation situation, it made me think of this. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. If people hear this, they want to donate to your campaign. We're obviously um, in the final push here in the primary. Where's the best place for them to do that? Oh, thanks for asking, Tina. That's great. Um, you can check out PeteHarden.com. There are links to all our social media platforms there. Um, thank you so much for for having us. It's it's thank a great you. conversation. In the upper right hand corner of my of my uh, of my website, you'll see a, a donate button, which hopefully we made uh, we made loud and proud up there because we do need to raise a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people may not know Orange County is the fifth largest county in the whole country. We're larger than 21 states, and so wow. one of the reasons I'm so excited about this race is because I think we have a, a chance to create a real model for sustainable reform, showing other communities across the country that, um, you know, safety and equality and justice, not just can go hand in hand, but they must go hand in hand for the sake of sustainable reform. So I appreciate, uh, appreciate you giving us a few minutes here and asking these questions. No, absolutely. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, I also will let you know that uh, when I covered the Orange County debate, it was really surprising to me that there wasn't any local news there doing this. Um, I have gotten tons of feedback from my listeners about how how um, happy they were that I had that audio and was able to present some of the snippets to them because this is an important race. I think a lot of people write off the district attorney as like, well, do we really vote for that? Who am I voting for? I don't understand it. I think that that sort of mentality towards this office has changed. People do realize how important the top prosecutor is. Uh, the decisions that are made from that office have everything to do with uh, you know crime in the city, uh, how how we handle what we view as just in the city. Like it's a very important job and I'm glad that people are paying more attention to it. So uh, good luck in your race. Uh, I appreciate talking with you and I would actually love to have you back on to talk about cash bail. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, let's, uh, we've got what, 13 days until until the primary here. If we get 50% plus one, we're done, we win. Otherwise, right. I think we're, we're very well positioned to end um, up. I don't see. I, so I well, let's talk about that for one second, even though I've already signed off. Uh, Todd Spitzer is not a popular guy. I, I uh, talked to the gal that started the recall Spitzer campaign, and I was shocked to discover that she is highly conservative. So this is not an attack that's only coming from the left in this in the uh, Orange County area that she is. In fact, I would say um, she's more conservative than probably you are, but she would take you over Spitzer, even though Spitzer's more of a conservative. I'm not entirely clear on what the whole story is, backstory is on that, but I was really surprised to hear that. I was like, really? <laughs> so yeah. he's just not a popular guy. He's messed up too many times. Not a not not a popular guy in a lot of ways, Tina, but he does have a lot of name recognition, unfortunately. And he's got a lot of money. Uh, he he out yeah. fundraised us about about uh, two to one. Only 35 wow. percent of people in the most recent poll said they would reelect him, though. Um, yeah. which is, you know, for, for someone who's been in politics for 30 years, that, that is horrendous. And that is bad. Uh, that he, is you bad. know, he, he, he should be, he should be really concerned. Um, mm. I can't tell you how many times I hear from 
you know, pretty far right Republicans who, who will say, Pete, I, you know, I can't give you money because I don't want my name on the report. And I, you know, I can't put a sign outside my house, but I can't wait to vote for you because I hate that guy Spitzer. He's, he's ticked off a lot of people through, through the years by his sort of, you know, elbowing his way in front of a camera and be first type of attitude instead of servant leadership, which I, I hope yeah. is what I bring to the table. Um, so we'll see, you know, uh, we've, we've got an uphill battle certainly to, to get 50% plus one, uh, but I think we are well positioned to end up as a top vote getter. Or... I, I think so. Yeah. 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 I think well, yeah, I think you're definitely if you don't win, you'll definitely be in the in the runoff position there. So, all right, we'll we'll talk with you soon. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Tina. This was really fun. Have a great day. You too, Pete.